Support for Best of Belfast comes from listeners just like me who love Northern Ireland and believe we have a better story to tell. Massive thanks to all of you listening who have already joined the Producers Club, especially our Titanic producers, Barclays Eagle Labs, Ulster University, Young Enterprise Northern Ireland, Gavin Wall, Peter Dixon and of course the Ormobiles team. To find out more about how you can support independent ad-free media, get invitations to live podcasts and submit questions to our guests, please visit bestofbelfast.org. Thanks so much and we really hope you enjoy today's show. Okay, so I've been sitting here for like the last 10 minutes trying to find the words to describe this interview to you, but I'm just going to have to go for it because, well, you'll see. So I've been reading this book at the minute about Leonardo da Vinci. It's a biography and there's this word in it called a polymath. Okay, it's a word. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's something that I've just been coming across recently. And basically a polymath is someone with a wide range of like expertise in loads of different areas. And to be quite honest, I've never met anyone in real life who fits this description more than today's guest, John McGregor. So John, he grew up in Short Strand in Belfast during the 1950s and he was kicked out of school at age 14. But through a series of like twists and turns, this event somehow led John to having just this wildly successful career. And honestly, it seems like every industry imaginable. So finding purpose and opportunity in unlikely places, John's story is one of perseverance, incredible diversity, and he's a man of very, very deep and strong faith as well. I just got out of the way today, to be honest. I didn't even know where to start with John, so I just handed the mic over to him and just let him talk. Let him talk about his life. Let him talk about what old Belfast was like, how it's changed over an entire lifetime, and also to poke into prod some questions about what advice he would give to a young person like myself just starting out in their career. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, this episode, it's unlike anything else I've ever put out before. And I'm really excited just to share it with you. It's a long one. We run way over time, but it's totally worth it. And so with that in mind, let's get straight into it. Welcome to your ears, John McGregor. And I really hope that you enjoy this episode. Let's go. All right, guys, what's the crack? My name is Matthew Thompson and welcome to Best of Belfast, the podcast that celebrates our wee country, Northern Ireland. Each episode gives you the opportunity to get to know and learn from some of the incredible people who call this place home through our unfiltered conversations. The show is brought to you from our recording studio in Ormo Bath, Sparkly Eagle Labs, a co-working space right here in the heart of the city centre. Make sure you don't miss out on our weekly stories as they go live every Monday morning by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app. You can also join our email newsletter crew at bestofbelfast.org to have episodes delivered to your inbox, along with some other top secret news, content, and info. That's it for me for now. Time to jump straight into today's episode with this week's local legend. Really hope that you enjoy. Started up where we left off. Take control of this night. Light it up, light it up. I sang them the same song to get them to sleep, and they all remember it actually. And it was uh, a, a 60, uh, 64 rock tune. 
diet group called Cream uh, that uh, you wouldn't have thought would have put kids to sleep, but it seemed to do. Unbelievable. Maybe well, it was it my voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, hopefully uh, no one my, goes to sleep listening to this. But, my you know. obnoxious voice. <laughs> so uh, talk to me about your... I don't know, your past with this building, Ormo Baths, like what would... Ormo Baths, Ormo Baths, there was obviously in the the 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, a network of these, because I know of at least two others, one very personally, the Tiltmore Avenue Baths, which was identical to this. Uh, when it was in operation, when I was a, a child in the 50s, uh, coming to, to, to swim here when it wasn't an office, when it was actually two swimming pools. And uh, the, 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 the one over at Tilmer Avenue, we went to it every Thursday morning, uh, tripped up uh, holding hands with some other guy from the class who had, you didn't want to hold hands with because he, he was <laughs> dirty or something, <laughs> or not nice. And... Uh, they, they would teach us to swim, but before they would let us into the swimming pool, they used to check our feet to see how dirty they were. And if your feet were dirty, they sent you over to this shower area, and there was these scrubbing brushes and bleach. Oh. And you had to put bleach on your ankles and scrub your <laughs> Because uh, the, where we were living, we were living in, in houses, you know, not two up, two down, one up, one up, one down, you know, one room downstairs, one one and a bit upstairs, uh, uh, no no internal bathrooms, external toilet, uh, one sink uh, that was used for uh, everything to do with liquid. Uh, so the, there was no bathing facilities in uh, sort of in that sense. I do remember a tin bath when I was very young, vaguely uh, being stuck in a tin bath in front of a fire. Uh, it, I was thinking about this earlier. It almost sounds as if Charles Dickens and I <laughs> grew up at the same Ladies time. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Oliver Twist to your ears. <laughs> uh, uh, you just don't realise how old you are. Um, and uh, But the baths was great because, you know, we, we learned to swim. And the way it was designed was the pool was there. On either side of it, there was these little boxes with a wooden door that was uh, half... Uh, you know, in the middle, you could see your feet and see your head, and you were given so many, uh, it seemed like seconds to get in, or else you had to go to another area, and the same coming out. And my big ambition in going to the pool was to be the first one into the pool, mm. because the pool was completely s- smooth, and to dive in and to break that smoothness was a big aspiration yeah, yeah, all yeah, week, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. to be the first in, you know. <laughs> it was triumph. And uh, when they dragged you out after I don't know how long, it probably was only half an hour, really, uh, they gave you so much to change. And if you didn't get changed, a guy was reminding me of this later recently, they sent you, uh, sent you to the cooler <laughs> to finish getting dressed and it was a room at the top of the baths and it was really virtually an outside space and you shivered to death <laughs> getting dry because when we went uh like um we didn't have swimming we didn't have swimming costumes or towels so they, they used to give us a pair of swimming pants which were red with with two two strings on either side to tie up and a tall which was a bit bigger than a tea towel, but not much. It was 
a very off-white colour because of the usage, with a red stripe up it. I remember that, two red stripes up this. And uh, this was going to the baths. And on our way back, there was a a bakery shop just across the road in Tampa Avenue that sold broken biscuits. Oh. When you know when they were selling them and they would break them, they would dump them in this container. So you could buy broken biscuits uh, for, in those days, it was imperial money, Long uh, way back in the day when there was a thing called a half penny. <laughs> or a, what we called it was a hypnie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it would have got you a handful of these broken biscuit things. Unbelievable. And uh, it, it must have lasted for quite a while because I remember a guy... When I worked in the shipyard, he called into a baker and he said, do you have any broken biscuits? And they said, no. He says, well, could you break me some? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was being serious. So oh. he was. So the, so the baths and, and this bath, I, I remember calling to it to come in and swim. Maybe when I got a little bit older. Uh, but because I lived in inner city Belfast, uh, east, uh, the Shore Strand area, like we were five minutes to the city centre. So in and out of the city was like walking to the top of the street. Yeah. You know, it really, yeah. from I was like five or six, I would have been walking in and around Belfast. Yeah. So very streetwise from a very early age. So coming over to here, although it seems, would you let a six-year-old leave your house to travel across? You just wouldn't do it nowadays. Mm. But my parents wouldn't have. I don't think they even would have thought to think where I was. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it just wasn't a concern. And I remember one time my mother asking me to take my sister for a walk. She was on a pram. And I thought, let's go somewhere exciting. So I'd heard about the Botanic Gardens, Ooh. had a, a, a sort of jungle in it or something. And uh, so we trooped up there. I was about seven. She was about a year or old in a pram and stuff. And, I, and one of my brothers, and I tripped them up through the uh, the Ormo Park up the Ravenhill Road, uh, across the Strand Millis, right up to uh, in the back way into Botanic Gardens and into what we thought was a jungle. Wow. Which was obviously the greenhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the baths, t- t- to me, bring back happy memories, actually. Uh, it, it probably if someone... Had those conditions now, they would say that's terrible. That's almost third world. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't be living like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, it was life. Yeah, and uh, we were having a walk around the building, and there's still two baths left, two actual baths. Yeah. And I kind of was joking, did you ever bath in there? And you said something really interesting. What did you say? I, I said we never had the money to go into the bath. But what I did do was my aunts who came from America, I came back, I brought them up because they had baths in America, I assume, and they would go in and have a bath and we would stand and the, the, the doors into the baths swung like a, like, a, like a Western bar type thing. Yeah. They were wood with glass. And we stood with our, our, our noses pressed to the glass, <laughs> looking enviously in at people who were able to get into a bath. Whoa. Whatever a bath <laughs> like it, it obviously was something good, but yeah. it was many years later before I ever seen one. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. So I'm really, really appreciate you being here. Um, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Just going to be very, very relaxed and just really all about your story. And for me, when I was thinking about having this chat, I've described you for the run up of the podcast as a polymath. Is that fair? 
If I knew what it was, I would comment. Ah, okay, so a polymath is, in my understanding anyway, someone who does a lot of things very well. And I, you know, we've we've chatted briefly before. We don't know each other very well. And the time that we, I was finding out about your story, I was just writing notes and notes and notes and being blown away at how many different types of jobs you've had. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into that. But the first question we always like to start off with, it's a bit of a stock question. And I'm really curious to see what you actually describe yourself as. And the question is, if you were to walk into an elevator and Liam Neeson was standing there, how would you introduce yourself on that wee ride up? Hi, Liam. Can I have your autograph, first of all, for one of my grandchildren? <laughs> I would do that. I've often done that with a lot of people, and I'll get into that later, who I've met. I've always asked for an autograph for one of the, specifically for one of the grandchildren. I say, hi, Liam. My name's John. I live in Belfast. Very proud of it. And uh, my real aim in life is to help people do what they want to do. That's really what I like to do, helping people do what they want to do. I'm better doing that than doing it uh, myself. Sometimes I get frustrated with people because it takes them such a long time doing it (laughs) that I probably could end up doing it quicker than them. (laughs) But that would probably negate the the whole process. I really, Liam, enjoy helping people. And a lot of the sort of jobs I've got into... I've, I've sort of been in and around that, you know, helping others. Uh, it's uh, I've been very blessed, I must admit. I didn't start with much, but the little that I had, uh, God, whom I, 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 I really do love very clearly, has really made the best of very, very little. Uh, uh, what I started out with wasn't much, but certainly what has happened over the 60 plus years has been phenomenal you mm. know it's been a roller coaster of a ride highs and lows uh, but I don't think I would change any of it uh, I'm sorry you're getting the idea Liam at, <laughs> at this stop uh, uh, because there's things I'd like to have asked you <laughs> amazing 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 so we've, we've talked a little bit about your childhood uh, you know short strand talk about going to the baths Let's kind of just pick up there. So what was your childhood like and how did that lead to education? How did that lead into your first job? We'll just do that. I'm not going to talk much in this interview. I'm just kind of going to leave wee things on the shelf and just let you run with it. And hopefully I'll pick them up appropriately. (laughs) Um, I was the oldest of six. Uh, One died. My next brother to me died about three months old. So then I'm the, I was the oldest of, uh, of, of, of the family. Uh, we, we, as as uh, Matt said, came from the Shore Strand. And at that point in time, which was you know, just after the Second World War, I do remember shops that you would see on television that you know, looked as if they were selling things for people, you know, for tokens and, and uh, you know, rationing and things. Like that. You know, they had that feel to them. Yeah, yeah. Th- those sorts of shops. Very, very old-fashioned shops. Uh, now, where I lived, uh, I, I lived in a street called Thompson Street. If, if, if I'd have gone beyond that, I'd have felt sort of I've, got a, I've gone a long distance. Mm. Uh, you know, it was a very tight-knit community you felt it you felt uh, very secure in inside 
the that triangle of the yeah. short strand. Uh, uh, it's quite amusing when when people are walking from uh, the centre of Belfast to East Belfast over the Albert Bridge Road. We could tell what religion they were by what side of the road they walked on. No way. It was very clearly Catholics walked on the left, Protestants walked on the right. Because when you got to the, the end of the Elbert Bridge, it was a quick nip into the short strand on yeah. your left. Yeah. And on the right, it was a quick nip into the Ravenhill Road if anyone uh, was uh, chasing you or causing you any problems. So everyone uh, who was from the short strand always walked on the left. Wow. And in, uh, transversely, in going into the town, they walked on the right. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't confused about that. So, so it, it, say, it was a very tight-knit community. Um, I, I, I can remember summer nights, you know, all these women out sitting, uh, playing. They didn't call it bingo. They called it housey-housey. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just sitting out and... You know, almost idyllic. You know, you know, all these neighbourly people having fun and all the rest of it. But when when you dug down deep, you know, everyone was really out for themselves because things were difficult. You know, things mm-hmm. were tight. You know, financially and all and all sorts of ways. Um, the church played a big part in in, in in my life. My uncle was a Franciscan uh, missionary. Uh, so there's big expectations on me, the oldest, to to follow in that path, and it was the last thing in the world that I was ever going to do. <laughs> uh, my grandmother was always scolding myself, my two brothers. Look at the three of you, and not one of you is an altar boy. Uh, <laughs> you know, you have no ambition in life, have you? And. Uh, so, uh, so church was, you know, you, you had to go, you went, you, you did the thing. And, uh, but in relation to material things, uh, it was only much later in life when I look back, I, I realized how little we actually did have. Uh, I can remember coming home from primary school, maybe primary three, four, and going to look for a, you know, something to eat. Uh, mother was out sitting with friends as they did then. That's all they did all day. They just sat in each other's houses, smoked and talked. And I got home and there was nothing to eat. Now, when I say nothing, I I don't mean I didn't like the things that were there and I preferred something else. There was nothing in the house, absolutely nothing to eat. And uh, that does sound very... uh, uh, very, very much like uh, Oliver Twist and all the rest of it. Uh, and we were not the worst off. Yeah. Uh, there was actually a pecking order in the short strand. There was Madrid Street, which was, which was the really well-off people. I think they had jobs. <sighs> then there was uh, Thompson Street, uh, which had two sides. My granny lived on the, the better off side. She... Uh, she worked, and then you had our side, which was less well-off, and they only worked part-time. Then you went to uh, Alcar Street, Clyde Street, which was re- you're really going down the pecking order now. When you came to Anderson Street, uh, which was really the lowest of the low, and I had an aunt that lived there, my Aunt Ethel, and I was over there recently, and someone showed me a photograph of Billy Graham and Arthur Blessed in 1972 walking down Anderson Street. Really? Which is incredible. I couldn't believe it, you know. And the photograph was taken outside my Aunt Ethel's house. (laughs) Uh, My wife's convinced that they were doing a prayer walk, and as a result of that, I got to know God. 
that may or may not be the case. So, so, so as I say, you know, things were difficult. School for us, we had a, a school uh, which was a total school until I was 11. Uh, up until that, everyone just stayed there until they were 15 and then they left. They didn't go to a post-primary school. There wasn't a post-primary school. It was just a school. And everyone went there to that age and they left and they, then they became unemployed. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so with me, it was different. They built a, a post-primary school uh, up the Ravenhill Road called St. Augustine and we were the first guys to it. So they were really just feeling their way with the whole concept, I think. And I was probably not the ideal candidate for a new venture <laughs> uh, educationally. Okay. Uh, I, I probably wasn't the sort of best material. And in my 14th year, they called me into the headmaster's office and the vice principal said, John, we've had a chat and we think it would be a good idea. And I'm sure you're going to agree with us. Uh, that you leave school now. <laughs> and uh, to which I said, I think that's a really cool idea. <laughs> I really think I could go with that. Because uh, the at that period of time, which was the, you know, late, f you know, 60s, early 60s, you know, types, you know, the, the hippie thing had just hit us. You know, it had been going quite a while in the States. Touched uh, uh, England a little bit, just about got to us, and 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 we were its first candidates. Yeah. So while I was at that school, I was that's what I was into. That yeah, was yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the answer to life for me, which was uh, uh, drugs, rock and roll, and whatever type of thing. Yeah. And I, I bought into the whole thing, and education was totally unnecessary. Love was going to change the world. Uh, so all you had to do was love people. Yeah. We adopted a whole new language. We, we I can't remember all the terms, but <laughs> a friend of mine who rings me again talks like that when he meets me. <laughs> and I, I, I need an interpreter at times <laughs> because, you know, it's all high a man, uh, you know, chill, you know, and you're let's cool our jets, man, you know. And, uh, and you know, it's all weird talk that we'd obviously heard from somewhere yeah. and just imbibed it and uh, spoke to each other in this strange language. And uh, so I got asked to leave school at 14. And uh, my mother says, you better get a job. I says, why should I get a job? No one else has a job. <laughs> and she says, no, give it a go. So I went to a, a place up the Ravenhill Road that had a little sticker in the window, you know, boy wanted, I think it said, or <laughs> something like that, you know. So I went in and asked the guy, I says, well, I think I meet the criteria, boy, want it. <laughs> I'm here, boy, I want it. <laughs> and uh, he says, yeah, you look tall enough, yeah. See your muscles, yeah, you look like you could hold a brush. And he took my name and he says, oh, by the way, just, you know, for you, can I have your address? So he says, yeah, 42 Thompson Street. He says, where? 42 Thompson? He says, he just got the piece of paper and he rolled it up in his hands and he threw it into the rubbish bin and he says, get your effing self out of this place. We're not going to have the like of you in here. Wow. So I went home and uh, said to my mother, uh, can you give me a job? And then he changed his mind for some reason when he when I told him our address. I don't understand what happened. You know, should I have told him a different address or something? 
And then she explained to me the, the complexities of uh, the Northern Ireland environment. Not that I wasn't aware yeah. that there were uh, two types of people. There was us and them. Yeah. Uh, and it was quite clear there was us and them. Uh, and they were different. I don't know what they, what the difference was, but they were different somehow. And uh, they weren't to be trusted. Uh, they didn't trust us for some reason. They didn't like us. Now, this was all without communication with any, anyone. Mm. Uh, all of this uh, made me uh, who I was at that time. And I remember one time standing at the City Hall on the 12th of July, and we were having a bit of sport, you know, as you know, you know, 16-year-olds, shouting, hi, Billy, into the <laughs> crowd, and everyone would wave back, because most of them were either Billy or something like that. <laughs> and uh, so we were having great fun at this, just across from the Lynn Hall Library, which was the coolest place to meet in town then. Really? It was called The Steps, Ooh. because if you go to the Lynn Hall Library, there are two steps up into it, uh-huh. just about two. So we always called it the steps. See you at the steps. That was the place to yeah, be. Yeah. Uh, so we were there. I was across the road. I'd seen a guy at the steps. I said, I'll, I'll nip across in the break in the parade. So as I ran across, the guy throwing the stick up in the air it just came down. And he just whacked it right across my back oh. and pinned me to the ground. So I physically crawled across the road <laughs> on my hands and my knees to a policeman and crawled up his leg <laughs> and said, did you see what they did? <laughs> he says, I didn't see anything. Ooh. I says, you must have seen it. <laughs> it just happened in front. He says, I didn't see anything. And uh, it was only later I discovered that there was a rule that you weren't allowed to break the ranks by crossing in between the parade. I uh, see. So it was a lesson learned. I never did it again. I bet you didn't. I never, ever did that again. <laughs> Uh, so uh, work I had to go and get something so my friend's dad my dad's friend said he could get me a job I was too young for the apprenticeship but they would start me and keep me secret from everyone else Mm -hmm. so I worked in the Royal Victoria Hospital in what was called the new A&E I think it's been knocked down now maybe 20 years ago. It's no longer new. <laughs> it's not new. But I, I remember there was a, a what must have been the area to, to keep the records. There was these long filing cabinets on wheels. They must have been about 30 feet long, and you could push them. Wow. And we used to have great fun pushing these things up and down <laughs> whilst we were supposed to be working. So I was up there uh, uh, as an apprentice, and a thermal and marine insulation engineer. Ooh. Big title, had to serve a four-year apprenticeship. And uh, it uh, it was a job that I used to love to go to. Every day, I couldn't wait to get up to get to work. Really? Because the people I worked with were so much fun. Yeah, yeah. It was just a laugh from the start to the end. In fact, I didn't even want to go home. <laughs> and I don't think I ever knew anyone's real name. Everyone had a nickname. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they all, no one, I don't think I knew anyone's surname until much later in life when my job changed. But uh, I just loved the environment of this banter and fun. And it just tied in with the lifestyle that I was living. Because most days, what I was doing at night, I was doing through the day while I was working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I had a smile permanently on my face. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I was the happiest chappy in the world. I was as cool as anything, uh, which was quite a change because uh, not long before that, I'd had a stammer for all my life. Really? And uh, I'd been really nervous, nervous for so. And I can remember I, I, the stammer was so bad. My parents lived in Carrick, Fergus. And for anyone who has a stammer, they know saying something with a C in it is difficult. It's c- 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 yeah. You could be there all day yeah. waiting on me getting Carrie Fergus out. Yeah. And I, I remember one time saying, can I have a ticket to Lauren? Because <laughs> 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 uh, it was easier to say. Uh, uh, so I, I obviously was not as cocky as what I thought I actually was, you know, because mm. the stammer was there, was obviously demonstrating something. And, uh, you know, when I do look back on youth, you know, it, it, it a lot of unhappiness with it, you know, that I think I blanked out and decided not even to to remember. And the job just helped me move on from that. Yeah. And I can remember standing outside the office one day and seeing this lovely car, beautiful, big, big, shiny car. And I says, who owns that car? And they said, Mr. Heaney. And I says, who's Mr. Heaney? He's the boss. And I, and I said unto myself, I want to be Mr. Heaney. <laughs> I want to be Mr. Heaney. And I think that's what I set out to be, was Mr. Heaney. So I did the best at what I did at the job. Uh, I was, and this is not bragging, it's just the reality. I was better than anyone else in the company doing what I did. If they had a choice of... Uh, it was contracting, and they had two identical items to be done. They would send me and an apprentice, and they would send six men to the other one, mm. and we would do the same amount of work as six men. That's how much I was driven, mm. you know, to be good at what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, so obviously that, you know, filtered through, and uh, the company I was working with at that time, they had two supervisors, uh, to keep the balance, they'd one from one side and one from the other side. Yeah. So one from my side uh, died. Uh, so uh, they 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 actually asked me to take the job, and I couldn't understand why. Uh, just prior to that, I'd actually become what I would call a committed Christian, and I was in this church. What they told me was giving my testimony. Apparently, you don't say that now. According to Paul Reed, you tell your story. Mm. Testimony is not a cool thing. See, it's all about the story. It's all about the journey, the you know. Journey. So, <laughs> so my journey. He heard my journey, and he said, uh, "I said, why did you give me it?" He says, "I we sort of reckon we could trust you." Uh, from the sort of things you were saying, so so that that moved me from the manual side of things into management, and uh, and uh, like Kilroot Power Station, I was the project manager for that. You know, which my wife hates. As she stands in, in Helen's Bay and looks across at the chimney, which is five hundred and forty <laughs> something feet tall, she hits the side of it, and I says. Don't be saying that, dear. That's what got us our first house. <laughs> uh, so that moved me into this management role. Yeah. Um, and I, I had no one to teach me what to do because everyone I looked around were hopeless at it, I thought. <laughs> so I, I just had to sort of make it up 
as I went along, you know, trying to be good at it. So I sort of cottoned on to the idea was, if I got these guys to feel good about the way I was, then they might work better, you know. So so I worked on it that way. I got them to feel good, yeah. you know, and invested in them. The first thing I did wasn't a very nice thing uh, when I was made the boss of the whole company. I sacked my brother who was working for the company. And uh, I, when I was asked why did I do it, I said I had to send out a signal that I wasn't going to have any favourites. There was no one going to be any different from anyone else. So if I was a son of a bitch that I sacked <laughs> my own brother, who else... Uh, would I turn on? John, you're savage. Uh, How'd your brother take it? I Well, I, I spoke to him later and got him a job two weeks later in another company. Okay, so okay. I had a plan all. But I sent out a very clear signal, so I did. And uh, I did that job. And uh, then, it's strangely enough, I, I got asked to do a different job. And I was trying to think back. I think I've only imply, applied for one or two jobs in all my journey, <laughs> uh, virtually all of them, someone's asked me, will you come and do this for us? Yeah. For some reason or other, they've seen me or bumped into me or or whatever. Uh, so for quite a while, I bounced about contracting companies. Uh, uh, you, know, you know, at one point I was in charge of a company that looked after all of Ireland and we had somewhere up to 600 employees. So reasonable size company you know uh, with uh, quite a turnover uh, they sent me off to Ashridge Management uh, Training Centre which in those days was was the bee's knees it was it was the Oxford or the Cambridge of Management Training Centres okay, right uh, the first time they sent me a guy picked me up at Heathrow Airport a driver <sighs> He took my case. I thought he was stealing it <laughs> and took me out to a Mercedes car, opened the back door, put me in the back and drove me to Ashridge, which was uh, somewhere in Essex. And it had a, a, a herd of deer running through the ground, 400 strong. So that just shows you Whoa. what this place was like. You know, it was really the bee's knees. So they sent me a few times uh, to get me upskilled on finance, you know, to understand, you know, the importance of you know, investment, return on investment, and all, all that sort of garbage. So, <laughs> so I got quite good at it. So when when I went for a job, I was the, the guy says, "Well, could you do us up a sort of budgety type thing?" So I would do what a budget was, and the guy says, "Me, you're obviously a trained accountant." <laughs> I says, "No, no." No, uh, but it was what they invested, uh, and that's what it produced, uh, a very highly skilled, financially and commercially aware individual at a very young age. Uh, I was uh, at the top of my game, you know, in my late 20s, when uh, a substance called asbestos became known to be dangerous. Uh, the, in Northern Ireland, it was a case in the la- in the land of the blind, the one-eyed giant ruled, mm. and I was the giant <laughs> because I was the only one who knew anything about it because I read a little, I think I read two pages about it, and I became the expert in Northern Ireland, and then I became the expert in Ireland. Wow. So people would ring me from all over the place asking, 
And I would say, well, for to do that, you would have to use the, I work for Cape Contracts, the Cape Contracts patented triple lock airlock system. Mm. So tenders would come out and they would say, uh, candidates wishing to be considered must be competent in the Cape patented triple <laughs> airlock system. And they would say, what the heck is that? Was that? It was nothing. It was something I just dreamt up and just off the top of my head. And uh, so as you, you can see, I, 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 I really ran by the seat of my pants. And I, I, I remember one very famous contract in the Royal Victoria Hospital. There used to be in those days a very long corridor with all the wards in it. And below it was the first air conditioning system no way. in Europe built by uh, Davison's Soroka Works. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, about 20 foot diameter metal tube and a large fan that stuck air in and then circulated it into the wards through square metal, very roughish vents, and then sucked it out and pushed it back another tube. Uh, what they did over the years was they just installed the systems in this space. Okay. You know, so they put the electrical systems in it, then they put the heating systems in it, then they put the insulation systems in it. Hmm. And the insulation in those days was asbestos. Oh, no. So they wondered why they were getting asbestos in the wards. And uh, it wasn't hard for me to understand. I knew exactly where it was coming from. It yeah. was coming from the air conditioning system. Yeah. Uh, so there was a tender went out to take this all out and do so everyone else tendered to you know uh, oh they were going to take years taking uh, these mounds because underneath the ward was a complete new floor the same distance below you know 20 feet high and this was going to take years to remove all the builders rubble so I says no 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 what we'll do is we'll knock a hole and we'll, we'll, we'll drive in JCBs and we'll take the high bits and put them in the low bits uh-huh. and we'll create a level space and then we'll get a large tube and we'll break cement trucks up and we'll, we'll put six-inch layer of concrete on top of it and give them a complete new floor. Yeah, yeah. So they got not only did they get rid of their asbestos and case for all eternity, they'd get a whole new floor, uh, to which we put in a cost of millions over what it would cost, but everyone else priced it at 10 times yeah, 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 yeah. what we did. So I, I, I was quite, you know, sharp. You uh, saw the opportunity. Of seeing ways of making things work. So as I say, people uh, got to know that you were good at, good at what you do. So, so you were asked to do other things. So worked for a number of companies in that sort of business. Uh, and then I moved, uh, uh, so that was the private sector. Then I moved to what they now call the not-for-profit sector. Mm. The third sector, oh, I yeah. think, is the, is the buzzword for, you know, the community, you know, that, that, that type of thing, <laughs> you know, the, the, the great unwashed. And uh, I, I dabbled in it a bit um, in the past uh, through creating what was known as ACE schemes, which were unemployment schemes for long-term unemployed, and we used them, uh, because of my Christian emphasis, to employ ex-offenders, you know, give them a job, 
and uh, and accommodation and stuff like that, and then move them on. So it was a sort of win-win type of thing. So I sort of knew what the sort of the community sort of needed in that sense. So I joined this organisation. Was asked to join a company called Business in the Community, uh, which was all about corporate responsibility, or they call it corporate social responsibility. But then they shortened it to corporate responsibility because. It was much better to say that. And, and and my boss was actually Prince Charles. Prince Charles oh, wow. was the guy who championed it. So I had the pleasure of coming from the short strand, <laughs> working for the Prince of Charles. That's interesting. And meeting him on quite a few occasions and actually thinking he wasn't a bad bloke on my dealings with him. And... Um, it's, 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 it's quite strange when you think, you know, all the people you meet, you know, how important they are. Uh, and, and, but you don't get, aw- after a while, you don't get awestruck by them because they're just guys like you. Yeah. I remember talking to the Duke of Abercorn, who's the Queen's cousin. He has a large estate up near Londonderry, Derry, <laughs> Stroke Derry, whatever you want to call it. And uh, he rang me up one time because we were doing some work with him. And he said, a chap's getting it very tight, John. I says, how do you mean your grace? Because he was a duke, he had to call your grace. <laughs> he says, well, if money's getting it, you know, a bit tight with money. I says, where have you just come from, your grace? He says, well, you, you know, John, I've just come from my 10 weeks in my house in Bermuda because I don't like the cold. And, uh, and where were you last week? And he was over at his businesses in England. And he owned a large forestry concern here. I says, Your Grace, if you don't mind, compared to me, you're bloody well off. (laughs) And he said, John, you're a cad. (laughs) And I said, Your Grace, I may be a cad, but you're still well off. So stop (laughs) whinging in my ear about not having money. So uh, uh, the the working with the business and community give you the the opportunity to to touch base with the the captains of industry, Ooh. as they are called. <laughs> and uh, as I was saying to Matt earlier, we had about 250 members, all chief executives of the largest companies in Northern Ireland. So the head of Bombardier, the head of Tesco's, the head of Marks and Spencer's, and, you know, all these large, all the banks, uh, all the heads of the health trusts, all these, all these guys uh, would ring John up for advice. And I would, you know, put my hand over the phone and giggle at times, thinking, <laughs> what are they asking me for? What do I know? Uh, but the giant was ruling. And uh, I remember sitting in a meeting, and uh, round the table, uh, we had a group, and they were called Civic Society. Ooh. Oh, they were representing Civic Society. They were important people. It was the four MDs of the four main banks, it was uh, William McKee, the chief executive of the Royal Group of Hospitals. It was uh, the head of uh, PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Stephen King. It was the head of the housing executive. And uh, and uh, there was Mary McAleish, who was quite senior at Queen's then. And we were tasked to come up with a vision for Belfast for 25 years ahead. That was our, our little task. Roughly ahead. when was this? This was 1990s, 1990s. Okay. Yeah, I remember that. 
and uh, and I was the guy in charge because uh, I remember them when I walked into the room going, "Shh, here's John," and uh, you know we better be on our p's and q's. You know, like like I was I was the man, and uh, I remember uh, we had uh, a very uh, reputable uh, PR company, uh, David Lyle's company, doing uh, some mock-ups of uh, you know, some sort of branding. Uh, I thought it was all a waste of time personally, but <laughs> they were interested in doing it and paying me, so what the heck. And uh, he came up with these things, uh, you know, vision, the V, the V. And Mary Mary says, John, I have a problem with that. And I says, what would that be, Mary? She says, it reminds me of a sash. <laughs> and William McKay, as quick as a flash, bailed me out and says, Mary, I beg to differ, it's a colorette. <laughs> and, and that diffused the whole situation uh, to, that uh, we were in. So, so uh, the job I was in was was working with these people who were making a difference in things, and and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, one, one example that I'm proud of: one of the tasks we were given was to help the long-term unemployed in Greater Shankill and West Belfast move into permanent jobs. Not training, not so. I managed to convince a network of companies to commit to me a ring fence uh, number of jobs each. So I had five hundred jobs mm. ring fence. They would give them the job if they met the criteria, which was really they they could stand up, say their name, and could be trusted to come back tomorrow. Yeah, you know, it wasn't you know big stuff, and we moved five hundred people into long term jobs. Incredible. So, you know, when I look back and I think of the things I've done in life, there are 500 families who were better off because of something I personally did. Wow. So I dabbled a bit then in sort of startups. Hey. Uh, it was all about uh, social enterprises then. Come that on. That had just been invented. We'll get your wee desk and all my baths here. People were <laughs> doing social enterprises, you know, uh, but uh, they were doing it for, not for profits, you know. So I was good at business, good at numbers, and seemed to be good with people. And people says, well, you can do this, so could you start up uh, this? So I started up this enterprise park and these six companies, six uh, community companies, and then it was going. And then someone said, would you come and work with a group of people with mental health problems? try and get them into jobs. I said, yeah, I'll have a go at that. So I worked for three years uh, in the mental health field and the first task was to build a building. Uh, so I had to purchase land, point architects, you know, come up with architects, briefs, all that sort of stuff. So, so a lot of time on my hands. So I sat in on the nursing course, the psychiatric nursing course up at Knock Bracken. So I got a year's of sitting in on the course without doing the exam. Wow. Which gave me a tremendous insight into mental health, which became very helpful because I did become clinically depressed later in life. Wow. And I understood exactly what it was because of that experience. Yeah. And uh, was not ashamed of it because people aren't ashamed when they break a leg or they get knocked down or they develop cancer. They don't get embarrassed. So clinically depressed is just another illness like anything else. Yeah. So it happened to me and I got better. And... Uh, so uh, I, I did that with the... the Maybe you just want to unpack that just a wee bit. Yeah. 
they're clearly depressed. Yeah, that actually happened through an illness. I spent four months in hospital, uh, of which over a month was in uh, intensive care. Uh, a thing called pancreatitis. The the little tube from the pancreas down to the bowel went into a knot. See, I'm an expert now on it now. <laughs> Before that, I didn't even know I had a pancreas. <laughs> Honestly, I didn't know I had a pancreas. But that's what happened to me. And I woke up one Sunday morning, three o'clock, thinking I had indigestion. And I live close to Langham Valley Hospital. I said, what do you need to Gaviscon? I'll nip down to the hospital, spoonful of Gaviscon, be back home, don't waken the wife. Why bother her? <laughs> Silly thing to do. So uh, the... the I drove down, the pain got worse, I stumbled into casualty, collapsed, and I woke up a month later. What? I, a month later. <laughs> in the matter of intensive care, not knowing how I'd got there. But they rang my wife uh, on that night and says, is your husband John McGarry? She says, yes, he's downstairs, I think, having a cup of tea. She says, no, he's not. Uh, he, he's actually here with us. He's quite ill. And she says, no, no, he's downstairs. He would have told me. <laughs> no, he didn't. John. And, uh, so, so, uh, so I was really ill. Uh, I must admit, and looking back, I think uh, sickness is harder for family than it is for the sick person. You have the pain and discomfort and all this, but the family deal with the reality mm. of serious illness um, like my way of dealing with it was uh, people were dying either side of me and I thought to myself they must be short of beds in the matter that they have me in with these sick people <laughs> I was convinced of that they were sick I wasn't you were like delusional <laughs> I really was I was I was totally high as a and morphine I, I had a permanent uh, uh, pump uh, in, in my left arm where morphine was going in continually and uh, sort of helped me out. They had another one in my right hand that I could boost it up. So when my dad first came up to visit me, he came in and I was chatting. He says, nothing wrong with her. She always chatting away. <laughs> <laughs> the morphine was chatting. And uh, uh, it, 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 it was a tough old time, uh, you know, but much worse than my wife and children because... You know, they were told on more than one occasion, you know, he ain't going to last. You mm. better get here or don't leave because he yeah. ain't going anywhere. Uh, so so they suffered a lot in that that I was totally unaware of. Yeah. Totally unaware. So I begged them to, to let me out of uh, uh, intensive care because it just doesn't stop. And they said, this is the best place because you have your own nurses. And no, I've got to get out of here. They said, but but you have M MRSA now. I says, what's that? They says, it's a bug that can kill you if it gets into the wound, which was lying open. Yeah. And I says, no, I need out. So uh, the matter then didn't have what it has now. So they actually, and this is truth, no joke, they converted a broom cupboard. No way. To a bedroom. That was the only space they could get that they could put someone into isolation. Wow. Uh, that it just took a bed and no more. And there was a window that I could just see out of. And all I could see was the wall of uh, Crumlin Road Jail. And I was in that room uh, for a month solid that no one came into unless they were gowned up, you know, with masks. And so. Yeah. so they very rarely came in. And very um, only my wife really was allowed to come in to visit me 
for short periods of time. So I spent a month in there on my own. And uh, my wife came up to me one day and I says, can I have a piece of pen and paper? She says, what for? I says, I'm going to confess. She says, confess to what? I says, the murder. She says, what murder? I says, the murder I did. I must have murdered at least one person, if not a few. She says, what makes you think that? Well, I'm in jail. <laughs> I says, there's the prison wall. <laughs> I'm in isolation because I'm so dangerous. Yeah. And she says, no, 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 you're not in jail at all. You're actually in a hospital. I said, no, I'm in jail. Wow. There's the wall. I can see the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and she says, no, no, no. And then she came up the next day and I said, no, I think there is something wrong with me. She says, why is that? She says, I've just sat and stared at that. See that floor tile there? Not that one, not that one, that one, that one there. For 10 hours? She says, that's okay, John. Sure, it is bored. I says, no, 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 no. I've been really happy doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I says, that can't, that can't be good. That can't be good. Uh, she says, yeah, maybe it's not good. So they, 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 they got me a psychiatrist who said, you're clinically depressed. And she said to me, quite honest, John, if I was you, I would be clinically, clinically yeah. depressed too. Yeah. Uh, so they moved uh, me to another little room with another guy who had MRSA and was also clinically depressed. And we, we got our hobby tablets, the Prozac, at a certain time in the day. And I would, uh, because I'm a bit, of, a bit of a joker, I would say, here it comes, Bill. Here comes the happy pills. We'll be okay on an hour. <laughs> and uh, we spent a, a month there, me and this guy, and... Uh, he, he he said he could never get to sleep unless he heard of his wife's voice. So I had to tell him a story every night for him to get to sleep. And after a while, I used to just tell him the three bears. Yeah. And I just, the three, what, there was a mommy bear, daddy bear, baby bear. Three bear. <laughs> and then he would fall asleep. And then I would lie awake to three and four in the morning because I couldn't get to sleep because he wasn't telling me about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, as I say, clinically depressed, uh, finally did get out and uh, have shared the story with people, you know, whom then say, yeah, actually, I did have a few problems, you know. And it's amazing how many people you come across because they do say one in five people will have a mental health problem of some description yeah. in their time. Uh, so if, uh, if you're sitting in a room of 10... Who's the other one? You yeah. gotta say to yourself. Yeah. And uh, so it's something that happened, and now I'm through. And uh, but that's life. Absolutely. Brilliant. So work, as far as it went on, I I I I I jumped around a bit. I the the the, the folk with mental health. Once I got it up and established, then I got bored uh, because it wasn't. I wasn't made to be a shopkeeper, you know, just keeping your whole whole thing. So I said, I'll head on and do something different. So I did a number of other things. And for a while, I became a pastor. No. I became religious <laughs> and uh, did the church thing for uh, quite a while and um, and stopped that because I didn't like the way it was going. The same way I stopped all the other jobs. Yeah. Something I didn't like. You know, uh, then I had to change it, you know, instead of really what needed to happen was John needed to change. Interesting. So, and this is, you know, in all of the jobs, you know, there was something wrong with me in all of them, you know. Yeah. And 
that's probably really why I moved on and God and his sovereignty, if you understand what that word means, uh, was taking care of me and was changing me as I was going. You know, like there's a, there's a bit in the Bible that says, like, don't, don't let this world make you the way it is. You know, try and let yourself become the way you should be. Mm. And uh, that's what I think I've been trying to do without realising it through the diverse jobs and uh, diverse expressions, you know, of life. And uh, so, as I say, work, I, I think there was only really one job I really didn't like. So my whole various jobs, I, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed them because I, I was choosing to do them. I was wanting to do them, could see an outcome, could see a benefit in some shape or form, whether it was monetary or whether it was social or whether it was you know, physical or whatever it was. You know, there was a, a, a benefit, so it made it worthwhile. So work really never was work for me yeah. in, in the sense of what I think people think of work. Yeah. You know, I have to go to work so that I can do the things I want to do. Yeah. I was doing the things I wanted to do yeah. by just getting out the front door. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Work was life. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't a job in that sense. Yeah. And wasn't hard to do. Really. So looking back now with the 2020 vision of hindsight, I suppose, what do you think needed to change in John across all those jobs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, John needed to learn that there was a better way to do things. And I'll illustrate it, and my wife hates this story because I love telling it. <laughs> and I've told it thousands of times. Here's a thousand and one. And uh, first part of the story is uh, we're, we're, we're heading to Limerick. We get into Dublin. There's a fork in the road. And I stopped and I asked the guy, I said, could you give me directions to Limerick? And he, his head went back and forward from the left to the right, to the left to the right, <laughs> left to the right, to the left. And then he said, no. I said, why not? He says, there's far too many turns. So he was working out the exact direction. Uh -huh. You know, left there, right here. Yeah. I was just meaning either that left or that. I just wanted yeah, the yeah, general yeah. direction, you know, yeah. really. And um, so I think uh, what I needed to learn was I needed to get my direction right. Mm. You know, uh, and and as I've said before, the the old Northern Ireland adage is, uh, when you don't know where you're going as a sailor, no wind's the right wind. <laughs> you know, we're just negative. Everything's wrong, and we don't. So, so one needs to know where one is heading. Uh, I should have learned that much earlier. Second part of the story is um, uh, when we did travel on. Uh, I had uh, got this trailer built, uh, and I was so proud of it. I'd got it painted the same color as the company car, which I was very proud of. Well. So it was all color-coordinated. <laughs> and, oh, I was the bee's knees. So I was driving off. Uh, we were heading ca camping then. You know, we had this frame tent with all the equipment. We had lights, heaters, Whoa. camp kitchen. It was no, home you did not. from home. <laughs> like, like we were the bee's knees and we were going off and John had sorted all this out, to say. And uh, we drove into Dublin and then things lunged to the left at the back. So as I look back, I could see that we had 
what looked to be a flat tire. So Sherry says, well, what are you going to do? I said, do not worry. I've thought about this. I'm a spare tire for the trip. <laughs> oh, look at you, what mate. A, what a guy. <laughs> so I got up and jacked the car up and I took the wheel off. Now, I ain't all that mechanically minded, but I knew what happened next shouldn't have happened. What came away was not only the wheel, but the independent suspension unit. Oh, it no. Was connected to Sherry says, and you've one of those as well? I just, <laughs> actually, no, I don't have one of those. Uh, we'll have to get this fixed. So John went into I can do it mode. Uh-oh. And I ran and ran. I mean, physically ran and ran and ran and ran. And finally found a garage about 30 minutes away. And I said to the guy, this was a Saturday run about lunchtime. I says, uh, could you fix a tree? He says, yeah, just bring it in. And I said quite furiously, if I could bring it in, it wouldn't be broken. Uh, it. <laughs> uh, he says, well, you got to get it here yourself. I, I, I'm busy. So I said, okay. So I ran off and I seen a couple of guys, a couple of travelers doing a bit of work alongside a road. And they had a tiny little JCB with a little bucket on it. And I says, hey, guys, you want to earn a tenner? <laughs> and they said, yeah. I says, come with me. <laughs> so I said, all you need to do is just hook that trailer, just get it up and no more. And I'll hold it, and you drive as slow as you can down this road, take the first left and then the first right. It's only 30 minutes. We'll be there in no time at all. So we're going, and then the guy starts speeding up because they want to get it finished. And I'm shouting, slow down, slow down. And they get quicker and quicker and quicker. And I'm shouting, slow down, slow down. And they're getting quicker and quicker. And then all of a sudden, the inevitable happens. The trailer tips over, and everything uh. in the trailer spills out. And, uh, and closes the road. Uh, <laughs> I used to say it was O'Connell Street, but that's an exaggeration. <laughs> uh, Shirley has corrected me. But it was a main road yeah. linking to O'Connell, and it stopped the complete, you know, everything went flying out, you know. You know, there was tins of beans, there was sleeping <laughs> bags, there was kids' nappies, there was, you name it, everything went flying everywhere. The road was covered in the thing. Oh, dear. And I had so neatly packed the thing. Uh. So I just, oh, I just bundled it all back. And I said, "Now Shirley's in the car driving behind, pretending she's not nothing to do with us, <laughs> uh, with the children." And uh, I said to the guys, "Now this time, go slow." Yeah. So we got it to the guys, and the guy starts uh, uh, gets his oxygen settlings, goes to well, his gas runs out. He says, "Oh, don't worry, I have, a, I have another uh, welder here. It it won't work, you know." And then he says, "All I can do is put bolts in it." So he he got this massive drill out and he put 12-inch bolts through, right through the, 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 the trailer, through through the, the steel frame, through the independent suspension, suspension unit and bolted it all together. And there it was. And Sherry said, let's go home. I said, go home not. <laughs> I'd managed to get us this far, haven't I? I'd get us all the way. I'm a mountain. And uh, I said, we're pressing on. And uh, so we th said the nearest campsite was in Dunleary. So we were driving to Dunleary. And then as we're going down the main street of Dunleary, which in those days was just a narrow street, very yeah. narrow. Uh, <clears throat> uh, and what seemed to be an unidentified flying object <laughs> flew by my right hand shoulder <laughs> this time. And what was it? But the other wheel. No. Came off <laughs> with the independent suspension unit. <laughs> so I knew, I went, and a policeman, or a guard, he, as soon as we stopped, he says, get that moved. So I dragged the wheel down, 
to the trailer and I just put my hands on me on the top of the bonnet and put my head on my hands. And within what seemed about two or three seconds, a voice said, can I help you? An English voice says, can I help you? And I looked around and I says, I don't know what you can do. He says, no, no, I could help. As one English man to another, the, the car I was driving had an English registration. Now, I had to bite my tongue and say, <laughs> well, not actually English, British. <laughs> uh, being from the short strand, you'll appreciate the, the sort of difficulty there. And he says, no, no, I have a friend. I'll go and get him. And I thought, he'll not be back. <laughs> uh, so 10 minutes later, he came back with two trailers, car, uh, one car with a trailer, another car with a trailer. Uh, they lifted uh, all of the stuff the, out of the trailer, put it into the, this second trailer, put my wife and kids in that car, put the broken trailer on the first trailer and took that trailer and me to a friend's house and took my wife to a different guy's house and they made them their tea and helped them feed the kids. And... Um, we went, and the guy was just driving out of his drive, and the guy stopped. He says, no, you can't go out. You have to fix this trailer. The guy says, I'm taking my new girlfriend out for the night. <laughs> he says, you ain't taking her anywhere. You're fixing this guy's trailer. <laughs> he says, I give you lots of work. You need to fix this trailer. So the guy reluctantly spent the rest of Saturday night fixing the other wheel. So we gets the wheel fixed, drives back, uh, gets to the campsite. They helped us put up the, the tent, and they made the ultimate sacrifice by actually blowing the air, air beds up with their mouths. Wow. And uh, I lay down uh, on the bed, and then I believe God spoke to me. And he said, John, because that was my name. <laughs> he said, John, we had two broken wheels today. One you fixed, and one I got fixed. Which was the easiest? Hmm. And I said, well, without a shadow of doubt, the second one was much easier. And if that was you, I got to do your way. So the big lesson in life, I wish I had learned a long time earlier, was that there is a better way to do things than the way that we often think mm. is the way to do it. So it's discovering that way is the important. And uh, that's probably the most important lesson I've learned in life. Wow. And I mean, what advice would you give people for trying to find that way? Because so this is really yeah, interesting. So yeah. I see a lot of so your story moving around a lot and doing things your own way. A lot of criticism you hear about my generation is all these millennials. They don't stick at anything. They go here. They go there. Da, 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 da. But I actually see a lot of myself and a lot of people like me in this story. So it's very interesting. Yeah. It's it's quite funny. Uh, like I'm sixty plus. I meet lots of people who are younger than me because most of the people in the world are now younger than me. <laughs> it's just a fact of life. It was the other way one time. When people ask me what age I am, I say I'm the wrong side of 25. <laughs> and uh, so you see people, and it's amazing how many people you see and you say, I've met you before. I've met you before. And sometimes I've said to them, I've met you before. And he says, who was that? I says, it was me. Mm. I was you. What you're doing now, I did that. And it's amazing how many people I've met who were me. Yeah. So we're not a lot different. You know, people think they're unique and all the rest of it, but we're not that 
different, yeah. that we don't come across the same sort of challenges and sort of same hurdles to climb over and all the rest of it type of thing. And for me, what made the difference was getting introduced to God for the first time in a real way. I was brought up believing I had to do things, I had to you know, action certain things. And even after I was dead, there was a chance that somebody could bail me out. So if I was going to get into any church, and I'm not in the church, I would go to the Catholic Church. Because even when you're dead, you got a chance. So, you know, like, it's, it's, it's like having a nace up the sleeve type of thing. Now, there's a bit of humour in there. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, th there is truth in that. But I was brought up believing you had to do these things. And, and uh, when I went to it, 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 was, it was all in Latin. And then they changed it uh, when I was just about 15. And the second time I went, I understood what they were saying. And I said, I don't believe that. I actually don't believe it. And I didn't know what I did believe. I knew I didn't believe that. And I said, I'm not coming back here. I didn't <laughs> come back there. Uh, so I didn't do anything. Uh, but then I did need something. You know, I did need something in life, you know, uh, you know, a purpose, a direction. You know, uh, as I said earlier, you know, everyone needs to know where they're going uh, so that the steps along the way make sense because we, life's not a straight line. It's like a guy who I knew was a sailor. He says, I says, how do you manage to get from A to B? You know, he says, we do this thing called tagging. You know, we go a bit this way, and then we go a bit that way, mm. a bit this way. You know, you, know, you know, sailing never goes in a straight line. You can't sail in a straight line because of the diversity of winds and all that sort of thing. And that's what life's like. You know, you can't go in a straight line. But you can go toward a direction. And as long as you keep that direction in mind, you know, all these things can make sense, you know, if they're all contributing to where you're going. But I had to make the first step. You know, I, I had to get on the journey. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, I had to buy the ticket. You know, you know, it's okay saying there's the train. Yes, the, it's it's going to heaven. Hallelujah! You know, unless I got a ticket, I ain't going anywhere. Uh, so I had to buy a ticket, and I didn't know how to buy a ticket. I honestly didn't know how to buy the ticket, and uh, all I could remember was uh, in Ben Hur, Charlton Hessen, uh calling on the name of the Lord. And I says, that's Ben, that, that must be how you buy the ticket. That's how you get it. That's how you get what he's going to do or whatever it is that happens. Uh, like the first time I heard the word Christian and I understood the word, I was convinced the person uh, had got into uh, a, a record by Ringo Starr, which is called <laughs> The Magic Christian. So I was convinced that there was something had evolved from that. And it was a new way of living through the music. So that was my understanding of a Christian. The Beatles. The Beatles. <laughs> star. So that's, that was my terms of reference. I dismissed everything I'd heard uh, in Latin. And the, the, the last two weeks in English, I dismissed all of that. So I, I was left with nothing on the plate to work with. And, uh, but started bumping into people who had this thing. And... Uh, said there was something called a committed Christian. I said, right, right. So it's, not, it's more than just a Christian then. There's another word to it, committed Christian. Right, okay, right. 
Still couldn't get a handle on it. But I knew they had something. I really detected they had something um, because I was streetwise, you know, from five. I would run around the streets. I kept out of trouble. I was only ever in one fight in all my life. Good man. And uh, managed to just face the, the group, the gang, the next night. Went straight up to them and said, what about you guys? Because uh, I knew that was the way to deal with it. Uh, so I was streetwise. I knew I, I knew how to sort things out, but this I didn't know what to do about it. I knew these guys had something that seemed good. Uh, it seemed like the right thing, and uh, so I decided to do something about it one night. And I says, Charlton Heston says, call upon him in the name of the Lord, whatever that meant. Uh, so I thought, well, you got to give him space to do things. This God guy. So I stood in the middle of the Antrim Road in Belfast, in Lisburn. I said, that looks like enough space for whatever's going to happen. And uh, I said, okay, God, whatever it is, <laughs> I'll have it. Give me it. I'm buying in. Take me, do it. I didn't know what word to say, <laughs> but I knew how to say them loud. Okay. So I, so I said them loudly. And then I said... And just by the way, so we know we're on the same page, show me a sign. Because there was a bit of that in Charlton Heston and Ben Hare. And uh, nothing happened uh, that I thought. But exactly a month later, I was walking up that same road and I felt like I hit a brick wall and I stopped dead at the exact same spot at the exact I know it was the 20th of August, 11.30pm. I knew the exact time and date. And the location that happened, physical square metre. And um, I stopped dead and couldn't move and uh, felt I was told to look up. And when I looked up, I felt I was asked, what can you see? And... Uh, I says, I see a full moon, I see lots of stars and the whole universe, and it really looks brilliant. And then I felt someone say, who do you think made all that? And I says, I think you did. And for the first, first time in my entire existence, I believed right from the top of my head to my toe tips that God was real, hmm. and God was there, and he was in direct communication with me and him and I had got it together. We were we were connected. We him and I got connected. So we did. And I was this committed I was connected and I, I was a committed Christian. So for anyone who wants to be as successful as me <laughs> <laughs> and there are no jobs for life, that is the case. Uh, there were jobs for life in my generation, but I chose to go another path. I could have had a job for life, but I didn't. That wasn't the way I wanted to go, and it wasn't what uh, I needed. Uh, but there aren't jobs for life now. Uh, the only thing that is for life now is this God thing, this committed Christian. It's the only thing that is for life, and it's important that you do it because... Uh, my granddaughter had a baby, and that baby had to be registered. Now, it, it existed. It was there. We knew it was there. But technically, it wasn't there hmm. because it wasn't registered. So if it didn't get registered, it couldn't go to school. 
it uh, couldn't get a it couldn't get a national insurance number, so it couldn't get a job, couldn't vote, couldn't get married. It couldn't die actually because it wasn't there. Yeah. It was buried. So you know, it needed to be registered. You know, there needed to be something you know written down. And there's a thing in the Bible that says that when you do this thing, what well, I've done, it says your name gets written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and it seals it. So that must happen to seal it. It has to be sealed, confirmed. So I believe, as a human being. I was registered, and I'm entitled to all those things, education, national insurance number, jobs, unemployment, jobs, unemployment, and all the rest, <laughs> voting and all the rest. Now, with my name in this Lamb's Book of Life, I'm entitled to everything that goes with it. Hmm. So it is. And that's pretty impressive, because the God that I uh, uh, believe created the universe, I read recently... Uh, about three thing, three things, and, and one of them was uh, just about the distance the Earth is from the the, the Sun. I give you the exact distance, and it says if it was fifth, it was ten thousand miles, I think it was, or something like that. I've a bit of paper where I said it, but I'm not bothered. <laughs> you can look it up. Roughly ten thousand, and if it was fifty miles closer, half the world would be really freezing and no life, and the other half would be burnt to death just by 50 miles out you know Uh, the air around us there's just the right amount of oxygen in it to keep us alive Mm. 21% a couple of percent more you let a match you blow the world up (laughs) just a few percent difference you know so you, you begin to think to yourself there's so much accuracy in that like that didn't happen by accident there's a there's a design there and if there's a design, there must be a designer. And the designer that I think that did all that is the guy that I call God, who I am now into in a big way. And I think that's the thing you got to do. you got to get into him in the way that you understand, not in the way that people tell you to do it. Like Mick Jagger said, um, asked, why, do you, why don't you go to church? He says, it doesn't scratch where I itch. <laughs> and, and that's true for lots of people. What people tell you about God doesn't it doesn't go where you need it. You need to go yourself. You need to find it yourself in the way that suits you and do it in the way that it suits you and arrive at it in the way that suits you and then it will unravel in an amazing technicolored life. That's the way it's been for me. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And so across this whole journey as we've been calling it, you know, you, you're now on the wrong side of 25, as you said. You've had a very, very colorful, dynamic life and career behind you. What is next for you? Next? Yeah, like what are you, or yeah. what are you doing now? Like what, yeah. how are you putting your days away? What's, what's right. scratching your itch yeah. these days, right. you know? Right, I do, I do, I think I do three things, but all driven from the, from the same source. Uh, the, the, the apologies for quoting the Bible, but the character who impresses me most in the Bible is a guy called Barnabas. Uh, says, son encouragement. He, he's the guy that went down to get Paul when the Gentiles started to get God. 
You know, uh, Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, right? He gets stopped on the Damascus Road, says, you're, you're my man, you're going to change the world. He heads up to Jerusalem to meet the guys, and the guy says, that's very good. You know, that's where you just, just take it. Head, head back home uh, for a while, 14 years, and he's kicking his heels, making tents, and he's sitting saying, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, and I'm sitting here making tents. <laughs> What's this all about? What's this all about? And then a guy called Barnabas uh, goes to a place called Antioch, and these people get this Christianity thing who were not Jews for the first time. Uh, Peter, who was given the keys, as they say, he opened it to the Jews, and I opened it to the Gentiles uh, through Cornelius. And, uh, and, 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 and Barbara says, hey, I remember that young kid. I remember that young kid, Saul. He had a real passion for this thing, so he had must nip down and see, his, <laughs> see what he's doing with himself. Must nip up to Tarsus or see what he's doing. So he nips back up to Tarsus. He says, hey, Paul, it started happening. They're getting saved. Come with me. Brings him up. The guys say, what's he like? Oh, he's all right now, he says. Peter says. So him and Peter say, now, we've got to agree now what we're going to do. You know, we don't want to fall out. So, and, and when you check it out, the only thing they actually agreed to do, when, I, when you check it out, in the they, they agreed to be charitable. That's the only thing they agreed to do. They didn't agree to the Lord's Supper. They didn't agree to baptism by water. They didn't agree to either pre-post or non-millennialist. Or they didn't agree to any of those things. They agreed to be charitable, to be good to people. That's the only thing they agreed in the book of Acts. And uh, that's what I try to do, to be good to people mm. in the circumstances that present themselves. So one part of my life, I now befriend people who are suffering from dementia. I went off and uh, became, and I have a badge for it, actually. No way. I have a badge. I'm a dementia champion. Doesn't mean I have dementia now. <laughs> Despite what my wife tells me, I do not believe it. It is a nasty lie she's spreading. Uh, six, more, six months, became an expert. Now, I'm not an expert. Uh. I have an empathy for people who suffer from dementia. And have a desire to try and interact with them and to be of some support and help to their families. So for a couple of mornings a week, I do that. Uh, for another couple of uh, mornings uh, a week or parts of days, I, uh, I, 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 I do my business thing. I, I, I do my uh, non, I'm a non-executive of two organizations. I used to be a non-executive of 12 different <laughs> 12. Oh, whilst man. I was still working in a full-time job, 12 non-executive jobs. Uh, now I have two. Uh, one called Springboard NI, which is about reaching out to young people and helping them. And the other one, which is Praxis Care. And that's all about helping people with mental health, learn disability, acquire brain injury, cosmic disease, helping them uh, have the best quality of life that they can have. Now, my input in that is in the business side, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the, the numbers and uh, uh, yeah, all yeah, yeah, yeah. that sort of thing. That every most other people would be, they'd be into that bit the whole time. Because <laughs> when I go in, people call me Mister McGregor. You, you know, here's Mister McGregor. Here's the, <laughs> here's the vice chairman. Here's the chairman of the finance committee. Here's the chairman of the current development committee. Oh, he's travelling down to open the new centre in Dublin. Oh dear, we must tip our forelock to him and all that <laughs> type of thing. And all. Uh, I, I get, I get a kick out of that, but the kick has an output which is improved quality of life for those individuals yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. The other bit has the tangible thing where I'm actually getting 
it first hand with people. And the third stool, third leg of the three-legged stool of this life uh, is in a, a Christian environment where I actively, actively look out uh, for people who I think look like what I look like and see if there's anything I could say that could be of one second of help to them in some shape or form. Mm. And so I actively pursue that and I'm... Co- my eyes are open 24-7 and I respond uh, to uh, times when God says, such and such a name, I used to just pray for them. Now he says, no, no, I want you to do something. You do more about it. I had to go and talk to them and, and uh, they'll ask you a question and if they don't ask you, you tell them the question they're going to ask and they'll say, that, that actually was the question I was going to ask. How did you know that? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so life's still... Uh, interesting because all of the history and all of the development and all of what made me me is still you know outworking you know there is life after 25 you know some people may find it hard to believe <laughs> you don't actually feel you're beyond 25 except if you try to run <laughs> that's when you realize it your brain doesn't and you know, and your heart doesn't, and you know, all that doesn't. You mm. know, it's just if you if you if you go to race someone, then you realize. <laughs> you so, so I don't race anyone. Good, 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 good. John, I'm just going to wrap up here with the final question. Uh, it's one I always like to close off with, and it's really simply this: if you could take yourself out for a coffee, let's say a 16 year old version of John, uh, what would you say to him? What advice would you give him if you had an hour of his time? just to download anything you wanted to download to him, what would that conversation go like? John, it's not going to work out the way you think. But don't worry. There's lots of things that are going to happen that may cause you a bit of anxiety, but don't worry. Uh, There'll be a lot of things you don't understand, but don't worry. Life is not in your control. There are certain things that are, certain things that will be, but they're only the small things, really. The tiny things, the big things. Someone else has more influence over those. So try and let that influence happen quicker than it does and change quicker. Change quicker than you would naturally change uh, because... You're such a cocky son of a bitch. <laughs> and you think you know so much. And people think you're so wonderful from time to time that you're in danger of believing your own press. So don't fall into that trap. Always remember who you are, where you came from. <laughs> <laughs> and you ain't much further on than that in real terms, really. Because like a song says, uh, you came into this world with nothing. That's the way you're going out. And in the in, in between is the best you can do. So I would say, John, do the best you can. Amazing, John. Thank you so much for sharing all you did. Cheers. Thanks, night back. <laughs> hmm. Well, <laughs> what do you say? What do you say to something like that? You know, how do you follow that up? The answer is you don't. So all I'm going to say is, John, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. 
really, really appreciate you. Really appreciate you sharing so much time with us. I know you're a busy man and I really appreciate that. I want to thank you guys for listening, um, particularly for all of you who made it all the way through the end. Fair play to you. And I hope that you got something out of today's interview. I know I certainly did. There's lots to go away and think about. And yeah, so interesting just to learn about the past of our city and kind of see some of these quirky things, you know, even being in Ormo Baths here and just, you know, chatting to people who used to be here whenever it was a swimming pool and all this sort of stuff. I just find absolutely fascinating. And, you know, one of the things I want to do with the show is a couple more interviews like this um, every now and then. Oh, just kick my microphone stand there. Oh, well, uh, of just hearing from people who have seen the city change. And uh, I think it's really interesting. So, that's it for me. If it's your first time listening, you picked a great one to jump in and you can subscribe to the show Best Belfast anywhere, you know, any podcast app. You can subscribe to our newsletter, newsletter, your newsletter, guys, at bestofbelfast.org. And thank you for taking the time to spend with myself and John. And I really can't wait to share another one with you next Monday. Thank you very much. Have a fantastic rest of your day and i hope that this interview has inspired you i hope that it has given you some form of direction for your life and i know that it's been really one that i will cherish so that's it see you later and until next monday all the very best cheers hi everyone i'm claire dodge gm of ormo baths a tech hub and co-working facility based in the historic victorian bathhouse in the heart of belfast city center back in the good old days Best of Belfast was my commute entertainment. Listening to the inspiring stories of Northern Irish people following their dreams and making magic happen was a great start or end of my day. Now that I've been working from home, I've kept up the same routine and it's a great way for me to continue to brighten my days. My favourite episode, well, it has to be from one of our dear members of our Omabaz community, Mr. Mark Todd. It was really inspiring And it just made me feel very peaceful, at rest and happy knowing that there's excellent people doing excellent things within Northern Ireland. It is our delight and our pleasure to have Best of Belfast based out of the Armo Baths. And we're excited about what's coming next. So if you've been on the fence about joining the Producers Club and would miss Best of Belfast if it wasn't here, I'd highly recommend you joining today. Pop on over to bestofbelfast.org and I look forward to seeing you in our WhatsApp group very soon.